0: My advice to anybody who's kind of out there looking to to do a startup: the first thing I tell them is don't do it. It's it's much harder than you think. It's nowhere near as um, exotic as, as it might um, look to be when you look at all the success stories. And then if they come back again and say no, I still want to do it, and then again don't do it. And if they come back a third time and it's like okay, maybe you should think about it now because it needs that kind of level of persistence.
1: From Toledo Society, I'm Mohammed Zaud and this is The Transit Lounge, where we track the journeys of people who are having a considerable impact on the Muslim world. Today on the show, Mohammed Jubara, a maths genius whose startup is transforming the way maths is taught in schools and who's taking the ambitious step of reconciling between key Islamic and modern principles in the workplace. So guys, I decided I'll record today's intro to the episode whilst holidaying in my parents' village in Lebanon. I'm currently in Bad Zord. Yes, the village is named after my surname. And I'm currently nestled between a row of olive trees, fig trees and persimmon trees. It's a very simple village, around 40 homes. Electricity cuts out for most of the day. And according to Bob Carr, Australia's former foreign minister, as he drove through the villages in Lebanon just like mine, he observed, besides lampposts and cars, there's little signs of human progress. Well, I decided to record from here today because our guest in today's episode is from the neighboring village, only a few minutes away from here. And whilst yes, the schooling system is probably subpar, there is much to admire about these villages. The morals, the traditions, the value they put on family and extended family. And today's guest remains proof that these villages are capable of producing more than just A-grade sumac. Muhammad Jabara is a friend and was actually my maths tutor in a previous life. He's now revolutionizing the way maths is taught with a program used by 20% of Aussie schools and 500,000 active students. We start in his home where Jabara reflects on being brought up in such a huge
0: household. You know, big Lebanese family, I was uh, one of eight kids, number three of eight. Eight? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and i um, going to tell you, that uh, sounds like a big family, right? But my mum... Has 17, um, one of 17, what? my mum and my, my dad is one of eight <laughs> as well. So, yeah, we'd make a fair bit of money on the on aid with the the relays giving you $5 each, it adds up.
1: Uh, did your parents guide you in, in any either direction? Like, were they really strict when it came to your studies and did they push you in a certain direction?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my parents were big on education and uh, interestingly, my... Dad went to grade three in school in Lebanon, um, and then he had to leave work and, you know, work on the the family farm, Um, and my mum went to grade five or something as well, and same thing, you know, somebody had to milk the cow that lived in a small village in Lebanon. Wow. Um, So, I guess they knew what they missed out on, Um, and, you know, they really would have wanted to um, education, and so... Uh, that was something they really stressed in the household. Uh, The eight kids, all eight, went on to university and surprisingly, I think uh, four of them are teachers now. So,
1: Jabara did fairly well in school. So well, in fact, that he skipped a year and got 99.85 in his final exams, putting him in the top half a percent in the state. With a million career options facing him, what does Jubara choose to study or rather what's even more interesting than that is his method of choosing what to study.
0: I was researching kind of what the options were and I heard um, that there is a course called Actuarial Studies which has a lot of difficult maths and mm-hmm. only 33% pass rate and I thought, oh, that sounds fun. You know, so like, what
1: drove you, the 33%? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Only 33% <laughs> of people pass this because the maths is too hard. It was like, oh, sounds fantastic. Um, let's do that. Um, and was that a recurring theme in your life? Like, you know, th- those things with higher barriers to entry
1: would, would kind of attract you?
0: Yes. Um, I have always... Being one to go against the trend. Um, I th- kind of feel like the world in general is probably going down a path that, um, you know, if you, if you don't think about what you actually want to do and, and, you know, purposely choose your path, then you're just kind of going along with society. And I don't think that's, um, the trends are kind of in a downward spiral, in my opinion. Um, so I think it's really important to, to kind of think about what it is that you actually want. And, and look, to be honest, at that time, the motivation was pretty much, yes, the path less taken and the challenging path.
1: Fair enough. The path less taken, the more challenging path. Sure, go for the degree with the higher barriers to entry. We've heard that multiple times on the Transit Lounge this year. But in terms of choosing a job, surely that can't be your path in choosing a career, right?
0: I saw a job ad that said, you got to pass an 80 question math test um inside eight minutes. And you're like,
1: that's the one for me. Could have been anything. It could have been the Stanford prison experience or anything.
0: It could have been whatever. If, you, <laughs> if it was it could have been a bricklay at the end of it. But it just sounded <laughs> exciting to do that test. Um so it was like whatever job needs you to pass an 80 question math test inside eight minutes, it sounds like my kind of work. Sure. Um and that was the only reason really that I applied for the job. That that was it. Would you say you were happy doing derivatives trading? Like were you happy in that job? As a job itself, like I said, video games. It was great fun coming in you get to exercise the kind of logical mathematical side of your brain Um, people were great but there was something missing inside me and I probably became clearer probably you know it started to build up while I was there but it became clearer around the global financial crisis so that year you know volatility in the markets, and we'd be making record profits almost every second day. Every second, day we're like new record, new record, new record. Um, and I came up with a strategy that worked particularly well in those high volatility times. So I was getting rewarded for all those, you know, the new strategies that we were coming up with, and the record profits that are coming through. But then you'd go home and you'd you watch the news and That you'd must, see, have,
1: must have challenged your ideals and your ethics and your values.
0: Yeah, to some extent. We, Derivative traders play no part in actually you know, what happened with the global financial crisis. So it's not like we were involved in the, the kinds of activities that led to the global financial crisis. We just, we're we take no position actually. So we just benefit from volatility. But it just felt like, well, the world is falling apart and I'm not contributing to, to it falling apart, but I'm also not helping. I'm, I'm purely, I'm the better player in a zero-sum game. So and what was
1: missing? You said something was missing in, in that whole experience.
0: There's no value creation because it's a zero-sum game. So if you're the better player in a zero-sum game and you're winning, to win, somebody has to lose. So I think at that point as well in my life, I was I was um, trying, uh, starting to learn more about my religion and identifying for more with, you know, asking myself the question, why am I, what does being Muslim really mean to me? Is it just something that um, I was born with or is it something that I, I really believe in? And I think those questions coming up, ones was like, well, it, as a Muslim, I, I should be looking to, to create value for certainly my next life and, and not just look to maximize my um, my personal value in this world. So you, for
1: the record, you quit two months straight after you were named partner at a derivatives trading firm in Sydney.
0: Yes, yes.
1: <laughs> You're crazy.
0: Yes, <laughs> yes. Most people said I was crazy. Um, and so th- there was a lot of interest, like what are you, what are you going to do next? Um, um, I said, I don't know, I'm going to take a year off, you know, maybe travel and – then I might, you know, coach my coach like the local kids' footy team or something like that. And well, you, you would know, have like, been like in
1: your, your mid 20s at the point, or late 25, 20s. 25, yeah. 25. Yeah. So what came first? Um, finding the right <laughs> partner or finding the right idea? Like, what was it that drove you?
0: So at the time, it was just like, so it's. Wanted to do something with maths and wanted to do something that adds value. And and that was kind of a math teacher thing. So Mm -hmm. once, once that idea came up and was like, look, this is a, it makes sense as an idea. Definitely, um, you know, the world is moving that way in terms of technology and, you know, adoption of um, technology in schools. It was definitely a trend that we wanted to, we saw as a something that was only going to become more and more um, prevalent in schools. So. At that stage, we knew we could make the idea work. It was, it was a case of building a team and, you know, the idea and what the product ends up being, it will adjust over time and we'll get that right. Like, right? failure was not an option. It was a good idea in a good, good market. Schools were going to go down this path. It was about building the right product.
1: And so your, uh, your friend continued working at Optiva. Well, you were working full time on on developing this, yeah. We need some sort of product.
0: Yeah, we needed somebody just in case we um, we couldn't pay the bills, and <laughs> somebody was earning the big bucks at um, as a derivative trader. So he stayed there, and he's he's actually just joined the business two years ago. So he, six years of kind of like he was doing weekends at my wow. <laughs> And so, what was the, the tipping point?
1: Top. Like, what was there a point where you both kind of saw this product and said, "Man, yeah. this is going to work."
0: yeah it's a roller coaster ride um any startup particularly tech product um i guess any startup but it's a real roller coaster where honestly sometimes one day you feel like we've nailed it we're going to kill it and the next day you'll feel like this is so hard We're we're not getting anywhere and selling products to schools is particularly difficult. Absolutely. The bureaucracy,
1: I'm assuming. Yeah. The, the, you know, the having to train cycle. the teachers. Yeah. The
0: sales cycle, you get one chance for the year. They basically make their decisions. And so, as a business, you're trying to run a business. And, you know, if you miss out on the sale that year, it's like everything was great. We trained them. They're using it. They like it, whatever. But, you know, there was a blocker on budget or something like that. Okay. Try again next year. Um, you're. Sheesh. Yeah. In hindsight, we kind of, go, I look back and go, how many mistakes did we make That the, you know, our approach to product, our approach, to, um, we would have done things just so different knowing what we know now. But I think it is partly that naivety that, um, otherwise you, you wouldn't do it. And my advice to anybody who's kind of out there looking to, to do a startup, the first thing I tell them is don't do it. It's, it's much harder than you think. It's nowhere near as, um, exotic as, as it might um, look to be when you look at all the success stories. And then if they come back again and say, no, I still want to do it, and then again, don't do it. And if they come back a third time and it's like, okay, maybe you should think about it now because it needs that kind of level of persistence. You know, you're really naive, um, initially I was, about how much effort is involved. So what
1: did it take and how many rejections did you have to go through?
0: Oh, lots. <laughs> <laughs> a lot.
1: Any, um, any experiences that stand up?
0: Uh, well, there was a couple of times where, um, we had to, we couldn't make payroll unless we, we made sales. And it's, it's amazing how, how. Just sell to your cousins, out.
1: man. You've got 26 uncles and aunties, <laughs> oh. you know, they, they're kids. I'm sure the Jabara family would have bought a couple of subscriptions.
0: <laughs> yeah, we had to go to the schools of price. Not all of them, not a lot of them <laughs> own schools. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, so there's a lot of times where it's like, it was, not a lot of people know this, but yeah, there's, there were times where it's like, oh, where this is really tight, um, and we had to tap into some some extra funds, and you know, borrow from and you know, good call, keep stay at Optiva yeah. so you can kind of borrow some funds for a while until we make some more sales. So there was a couple of scary moments. I think it was a time where it, um, it really came together. It was I did a trip to Perth, and uh, it was meant to be a couple of days trip, and um, we did an email campaign out to teachers over there, um, saying you know the CEO is coming to Perth. Not that anyone knew who I was at the time. Fake, uh, it, until fake it, right? it until you make it. Fake it until you make it. Yeah. The CEO, <laughs> and it was meant to be like a three day trip. Um, and we were getting a lot of bookings and a lot of interest. Um, so I extended it and did a two week trip in Perth. And that's really where what kept us going. It was the product itself. When you did, demonstrated what it could do, it was, it was jaw dropping for, for some teachers. They're like, this is life changing in terms of what I can do in the maths classroom. And so even though it was so hard to get the sales and all of that, we knew we were onto a winner. Sure. Um, and it was like there was enough there to say like we, we need to find the right way to get the money to, to make the sales and, and all that and work out all our processes to do that.
1: And um, so you mentioned like it was the roadless travel but it was also a very difficult road. Sometimes you won't be able to pay kind of salaries and payroll and whatnot. You had that drive and you said to yourself, failure is not an option. But what else helped you get out of those kind of troughs? Did you have mentors? Did you have people advising you? You got good feedback from people, but is there anything that happened that kind of kept you going?
0: Yeah, that's, I guess there's um, there's a concept in um, in Islam called tawakkul, um, which is a reliance, and this was putting your reliance on God. And there is um, a really strong emphasis in Islam on that your risk, your your sustenance, your wealth um, is preordained. Um you won't make a single cent more than was preordained for you in your life. And I think there's a real advantage of the, the Muslim um mindset, I think, um, that if you know that, if you if you really try and channel that, that um then the the business side of it doesn't doesn't matter anymore. Um you're like, I'm gonna do the right thing, I'm gonna do something that's um that adds value, something that um, I can live up to the values that I believe in. And what happens, happens. And I think it's a it's an unfair advantage, I think, that the Muslim mindset has. And so you were um, flying
1: around Australia, knocking on doors, getting teachers to kind of understand the product one and then be go through all the bureaucracy to, to kind of adopt the product. Uh, you had a couple of kind of lights at the end of the tunnel. You had Eddie Wu jump on board and, and the Pearson deal. Do you mind talking us through the Pearson deal? What What is the makeup of the Pearson deal and, and how did you get that?
0: Yes, yeah, so it's interesting. I think a lot of um, startups um, get this where they look like they're an overnight success and like, oh, oh wow, this um, got a big deal with uh, Pearson, who's the world's largest publisher, US-based deal. But yeah, that was, that was um, you know it's five or six years into MathSpace when we got that. And uh, it, was, it was an interesting kind of journey. They, um, Pearson, being the the giant global publisher that they are, they ran an initiative for startups. They called it Catalyst, where they would work with startups on some of the big challenges that they had as a global publisher. Correct. And one of the big challenges that they had was doing maths on mobile or touchscreens, and that's something that we were doing really well because we had uh, integrated handwriting recognition, so students could just handwrite their mathematics on a on tablet or mobile phone and we basically built the technology that could um, take, take their handwriting, we didn't build the handwriting technology, we built the technology that could understand the mathematics and mark that as um, correct or incorrect and, and give specific feedback as they went.
1: So Jabara does fairly well to say the least. But there are two key things that really inspire me from his journey. The first is his sense of responsibility to improve maths literacy across the world. He and his team started testing models like paying kids to do their maths. A model that he was asked to do a TED talk for. But the other inspiring part of his story is his ability to integrate some key Islamic principles into his work. Principles such as Tawakkul as you just heard but also things such as al Dhan in the corporate world.
0: There's one thing's for sure. If we keep doing what we've been doing for the last 20 years, we've seen a steady decline in math results for 20 years, and it's just going to continue happening. So you start to get this sense of responsibility now that I got into math space. Because I wanted to add value. Uh, now we're in a position of responsibility to add value because we're we're in, all these people are using us. and We need to make them better at, at mathematics. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a problem worth solving in so many ways. I think the world is a worse place for people not being good at mathematics. Um, and I don't mean you know I'm not just you know preaching mathematics because I love mathematics, but I think it's a lot of the what mathematics does is that ability to think, ability to reason, ability to logic, ability to Hold someone's attention for a while, perseverance and that kind of thing. It's like in this (laughs) modern day where students are, you know, the modern kid is just distracted by social media and thing. You can't hold their attention for more than a couple of minutes. Mathematics is one of those great subjects where you have to give it deep thought. It teaches you logic, um, teaches you to reason. I would go as far as to say that if the American public was better educated at mathematics, then they would not have elected Donald Trump as president. Uh, You know, I think there's a direct correlation there. Interesting.
1: And do you derive any of that ambition and inspiration from your religious identity or religious background?
0: Yeah, 100%. I think there is, as I've learned more about my religion and kind of succeeded more in business, I have seen that they work together. A lot of the, even look back at the mistakes I've done in business, I, I feel like a lot of times that... Had I known a bit more about religion, or have I had I implemented it a bit better in my in in practice in my life, that I would have made better business decisions. Can you give me an example?
1: Because like that sounds very utopian.
0: So in business in general, you you're often, um, especially in the startup, you're often optimizing for the short term. And any kind of the you know world class businesses that are created, you'll, what you'll see is they built a lot of strong foundations for long term. So a lot of things they do, whether it be kind of. Um, employee engagement kind of things um cultural things these these are almost a cost on the business right and if you have short-term thinking you're know, like why would i care if employees are, are happy like, i want to get the most out of them in mm. the short term right because that's that's how you drive money but in uh, islamically and if you have that um, mindset where you're doing the right things and you know you have that tawakkul that reliance that you know the money doesn't become a factor anymore. So you have a much more longer term view of uh, the decisions that you're making and you start doing things and and there's all kinds of things. I think there's a prophetic saying that you should pay your staff before their sweat has dried. Uh, obviously 1400 years ago when people used to work with their yeah, hands absolutely. out in the fields. And, um, in this context, it's like when, when they log out
1: before they log out of their computer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Before they log out of their computer, you know, you know, and, and those are the kinds of things that are like, you know, we're looking at small things or whatever, but they, they make a real difference. Um, Please. personal bond is another one. Um, just having a good opinion of, of people and not judging people's intentions. It's like always assuming people have the best intentions in what they do. Was Makes that me. important in your, uh, co-founder relationship? One hundred percent. That if you use some of these, you know, Islamic principles as as rules in your life, you you find the kind of benefits that it has in in business. And these again, they're long term things. That's but in the way you treat people, you always assume they have the best intention. It makes a massive difference to how you know how committed and how engaged they are. You know, and then again, similar things like somebody is sick. Are they really sick? You never question that as a, if you have good opinion of people. You was like, well, they said they're sick. They're sick, you know. Like it's and it, and these, these are the you'd kinds of could be a good boss to work for. I think. <laughs> <laughs> and in the short term, there's a cost to that, right? In the short term, there's going to be and I there's no doubt there's a the short term that people will take advantage of that at times and whatever. But in the long run, you the kind of people that you build and attract to your company are people who are self motivated, who are purpose driven, who are, are mission driven, that that are loyal.
1: A couple of do's and a couple of don'ts. For, for young people who are aspiring to kind of do the next big thing and for professionals out there who've been in the corporate world for the last you know 10 or 15 years and want to kind of just do something uh, what are what are your dos and don'ts
0: um so don't ever compromise on on your values it's only a, a benefit don't don't um sell yourself short don't be worried about um, how people's perceptions of you that's a, that's a big one I think uh, being united around a cause is really important as well. I think that's something that, you know, pick something and stick to it for the long haul, I think, is, is a really – also another difficult thing to do. Yeah, I mean,
1: in, in this day and age, it's very hard to focus. They can barely focus on, on an equation and, you know, once they can't crack it the first time, yeah, they usually that, quit. So that
0: persistence, I think. Yeah, um, relentlessness. Like once you've kind of found what it is that you want to work on, like stick to it and stick to it and, and keep doing it. And, and if you're doing it for the right reasons, then, you know, you make failure not an option. You know, you, you kind of start to look at the worst case scenario this is – an interesting way to do it as well. You're going to look at the worst case scenarios, like what happens. Okay, let's let's say it goes terribly bad and we fail as a business and and all of that. And if you don't care about people's perceptions and all of that, because yeah, sure. you're, you're a person that doesn't care about that stuff. You're doing it for a higher purpose than that. Then you're like, well, like, am I going to starve or then do I just drop back to my job as in the corporate world or whatever? Yeah. And there's nothing like yeah. that. I think we need a lot more ambitious people, a lot more um, people who are ready to change the world and we have this, yeah, and add value. Okay. Muhammad
1: Jabara, we're going to ask you a series of quick questions. Yeah. You've got a minute. Um, so number one, sure. you're yeah. the Imam on the 27th night in Mecca and you have been asked to make
0: a dua. You get the chance to make one dua. What is that dua? Um, you can't go past the, the dua that Muhammad sallallahu wa told us to make on that night. It's Allahumma in for and one as a Allah, you are the most forgiving or pardoning. You love to pardon and forgive, so forgive and pardon us. Um, and of course, yeah, doing that for. And I think you know, just a quick, interesting fact that in all these um, du'a, you're you're saying us, and so it's it's a it's not just me, but you know, forgive us. So making that for a real communal for everybody.
1: Fair enough. And um, a book or a podcast you'd gift, or you, or one that you've learned to the most from.
0: You obviously can't go past the 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 Quran, of course, and the, the Quran and the the seerah of the Muhammad And one written by Martin Lings was actually really affected me. It's okay. a, a really good um, book on the biography of of the Prophet. But um, a book that I've read recently as well that had a, a real profound impact on me as well was one by Hamza Yusuf, The Purification of the Heart, which is a really I think it, um an important um topic um for for Muslims to read and and anybody to read really is. Um, on those kind of diseases of the heart, the uh, kind of subtle things that you should really try and, um, and I think it really, you know, gets your moral compass, um, pointing in the right direction.
1: Hi guys, thank you very much for listening to this episode of The Transit Lounge. Just a quick note regarding The Transit Lounge. The Transit Lounge is one podcast in a network of podcasts under the banner of Toledo Society. We've currently got another series live called Seven Stories. Seven minute stories as you drop off your kids to school. Visit us on toledosociety.com to find out more.